Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 23, we're kind of doing a continuation uh, from where we've left off, which is basically the law of Moses. Uh, this would be part three, by the way, so uh, third message. But, uh, you know, what is, what's going on here? Well, we're at a point in Exodus where the nation of Israel, uh, it's really being founded. This is the founding of the nation of Israel. You'll recall that it started with one family, right? The family of Jacob and his 12 sons. And uh, early in Exodus, they went to Egypt. The Lord delivered them from a, a, a tremendous famine that was going through the land. And so there were 70 of them that went there. And, uh, you know, Usually the patriarch, I mean, even, you know, we're not in a patriarchal system now, but even even now in our generation, I think of my parents, you know, usually the eldest parent or maybe the grandparent, they're kind of the glue that holds the family together. You know, they're the, they're the ones that kind of set the tone for the family. And, and no doubt Jacob was the glue that held the, his family together. Even though there were 70 of them, there probably was some kind of a code of ethics. Your family probably has a code of ethics. You know, things that are accepted things that are unacceptable and, and, and you kind of live your way by that. That's why your families uh, survive and everything. Well, if you think about it, now how many years later there's two to three million children of Israel and undoubtedly there's, you know, there's no codified or unified code uh, for them to live by. And, and so that's what the Lord God is doing through the law of Moses. He's, he's describing what the nation of Israel is to look like, the people who are led by him, and how they're going to behave. And so that's what we've been looking at, the law of Moses. Uh, the law of Moses here is specifically for Israel under the old covenant. However, there are principles that we've been going through and looking at that apply to us even today. So that's what we're looking at this morning again. Uh, principles uh, founded in the law of Moses. So beginning with verse 1. It says, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And, you know, we might say, well, is that just for the, for the nation of Israel? No, those are principles that would apply today. What is the principle? The principle is the innocent shouldn't suffer. The innocent should not suffer. And so he says, don't circulate a false report about someone. The word circulate in the King James Version is the word raise, and, and what it means is to lift, to carry, or to take away. And the way I look at this is it's like, it's like the Lord is saying, don't raise a false report. In other words, don't initiate a false report about someone, a rumor, a lie, an untruth. Don't spread a false report. You know, someone tells you something, don't repeat it. In fact, Go beyond that. Don't even receive a false report. Don't give it credence. If someone starts gossiping to you right away, just nip it in the bud. Hey, hey, that's gossip, and we really shouldn't be talking that way. You know? So these principles apply to us as well. He continues, he says, Don't put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. In other words, don't conspire with someone to give a false report. He says, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. 
And all I think about is peer pressure. You know, don't succumb to the pressure to perpetuate a lie. Stand for the truth. Even though you might be the only one standing, you need to still stand for the truth. Now, contrary to what, uh, and I don't know where everyone's political leanings are, but contrary to what democratic socialism would you have you believe, I think it's interesting here, uh, this, this, this last part, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. You see, the rich are not necessarily wicked. Now, I know that's, that might be shocked to some of you, but the rich are not necessarily wicked, and the poor are not necessarily innocent. And so wealth and poverty are not moral conditions, okay? Wealth and poverty are not moral. So what the Lord is saying here through Moses is don't render a false judgment in favor of the poor just because you feel sorry for them. Just because they're poor doesn't mean they're innocent necessarily. Again, the, the, the whole principle here is the innocent should not suffer whoever they are. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Now imagine the scenario if you be if you would. You're a child you're you're one of the people, the children of Israel, and uh, you and your neighbor You've got this dispute going on. Maybe he's uh, Eli Hatfield and you're Mordecai McCoy, you know, or something like that. Uh, and, and you've got this ongoing dispute going on between the two of you. He hates your guts. And, you know, you know, you're not supposed to hate, but, you know, kind of the feeling is almost mutual, you know. Um, so you're walking down the road and you see his ox or his donkey. It's got loose from his farm and it's wandering off and down the side of the road. Or you're walking along and, and you see his pack mule. It's stumbled into a ditch and, and it can't get itself back up. You know what your human nature would do? Or my human nature is a tendency is to say, ha, 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 they deserve that, you know. They're getting, they're getting their just deserves deserts. That's human nature, human sinful nature. Proverbs 24, 17, verse, uh, verses 17 and 18 says this, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. So we're to be just, right? We're, the innocent should not suffer. We're to do justice, but we're not to neglect mercy. We're not to neglect mercy. Why? Because God is just, but he's also merciful. And we're to be like him. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And that just goes against the grain, doesn't it? Paul put it this way in Romans 12, 17 through 21. He says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And you know, you, so you see your, your neighbor's ox, the guy that hates your gut sitting there. And the tendency is just to say, you know, I'm just going to let it, I'm going to let it sit there because he deserves it. it. You know, it's easy to become overcome with evil. It's, it's, that's the easy road. The easy road is, man, they deserve it. I'm not going to do anything about it. But what we're told here is to overcome evil with good. And that means to practice mercy. James 2 verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So not only were we're commanded to do this, and that was the law of Moses for the, for the children of Israel in that time, but think about what God is doing in the nation there. He's giving an opportunity for reconciliation. That probably wouldn't happen, right? Because if you hate your neighbor's guts and they hate your guts, you're probably avoiding each other. Because if you see each other, you know, you're going to start, you know, want to strangle each other or whatever. And so you, typically there's this separation between the two of you. And now you're, you're actually bringing the oxen to them or helping them lift their, you know, take the load off the donkey, whatever. You're, 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 you're faced with interacting with this person. Now, they may still hate your guts and they may still, you know, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to all of a sudden go, oh, Oh, let's, you know, I'm sorry that we had this disagreement. That may not necessarily happen, but the seed and the opportunity is there for reconciliation. That otherwise wouldn't be. And so I love this is what God is doing. He's trying to get uh, his children to reconcile with one another because you wouldn't expect that, right? You would, if, if they were doing that to you, you'd expect them to do evil to you. And all of a sudden they're doing something kind to you. And it, it really rocks your world when that happens. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So think about it. Back in verse 3, don't show partiality to the poor just because you feel sorry for them. And here in verse 6, don't show partiality against the poor just because they're powerless and not influential. So it covers both situations there. Verse 7, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And it's such a sad in, indictment, I think, of our times. You think of, of the, you know, uh, quite frequently, the righteous and the innocent do suffer. They're wrongly judged. They're wrongly punished. And then quite often, the wicked, they seem to escape judgment. It's like they get away with murder. Well, ultimately... Eventually, the wicked will face judgment because God will not justify the wicked, and we shouldn't either. Verse 8, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So don't take a bribe. You know, money kind of influences people, obviously, and so don't do that. But then verse 9, there's a principle here, and that is try to see things from someone else's position. Try to put yourself in their boots or their situation. Mordecai, you know, uh, McCoy, 
It's like, why is he, why does he hate your guts? Did you do something? Or, you know, is there some reason why he hates your guts? Try to put yourself in someone else's position. And so what the Lord is telling them is, you know, they knew what it was like to be a stranger in Egypt. They knew exactly what it felt like to be mistreated, to not have any rights, to be oppressed. And so God is emphatic that they not mistreat others who are on the outside. You know, a stranger, they're not one of us. So, you know, we can just treat them how we want to treat them. You know, don't mistreat those who are on the outside of our own social circle, which are the strangers. He says, you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it feels like. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus knows what it feels like to be human. When you and I are struggling through temptations or trials, Jesus knows what it's like to go through those. Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18 says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Isn't that nice to know that the Lord knows what you're going through? That there's nothing that he's like, well, I, don't, I, I can't relate to that. No, he can relate to it. He can relate because he's went through it. In fact, he went through it much worse than any of us ever would go through anything, any kind of trial. He's had it much worse. Verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So now here in verse 10 we, and verse 11, we have the Sabbath year. It's a full year um, of, of of basically giving the land a rest. The purpose is rest. Giving the land a rest so that the poor and the beasts, uh, you know, the poor could glean. Just, just let your, just let it grow. Don't, don't harvest it. Don't till it. Just let it go. And that way, the poor they can get a harvest out of that land. And and what they don't get, the beasts of the field. God even's concerned about them. The beasts of the field can eat what's left over after them. Well, you know. As we go through the history of the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament, we find out that they neglected the Sabbath year for about 490 years. And uh, the nation of Judah, they spent 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And the Lord basically, he gave the land 70 uninterrupted Sabbath years because the children of Israel wouldn't do it. And so they had one year for every Sabbath year they, they skipped. And so they had 70 years of, of captivity. So verse 12 talks about not the yearly Sabbath, but the weekly Sabbath. And again, the purpose is the same thing. It's rest. Giving the servants and animals rest one day a week. Both types of Sabbath, the purpose is rest. It was never meant to be a burden. It was meant to be, it was meant to be beneficial to the people. You know, for you and I under the new covenant, the Sabbath observant, you know, this whole, the whole thing that we read about, it, it's, it's to point people to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, finished the work of redemption for you and I, and then he rested. And, and we're to rest in that finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it's pointing to. We're to enter into his rest. Verse 13. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect. 
and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. The word circumspect means to hedge about and to guard. And it can also mean to pay regard or uh, to attach oneself to. And in the context of verse 13, I think what it's, what it's communicating is we're to regard God's word. In other words, we're to honor and reverence God's word. And we're to also guard God's word, to preserve it. What do I mean by that? Well, Psalm 119.11 describes what, I, what I'm trying to get across. Psalm 119.11, you uh, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's taking God's word in and memorizing it, meditating on it, you know, letting it, letting it become part of your life, God's word. That's, that's what I think being circumspect is referring to. And then he says, make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. You know, it was interesting. I was doing a little bit of research and this commentator mentioned King Saul and I thought, what? King Saul, what does that have to do with anything? I started digging into there and it's interesting. We all know the story of King Saul, right? First king of Israel. He started out really well, but he didn't finish well. But you know what's interesting? In First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Chronicles 8 verse 33, we get the genealogy of Saul. And it says this, Ner begot Kish, Kish begot Saul, and Saul begot Jonathan, uh, Mal, whatever the name is, Malkushuya, uh, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. And that Eshbaal, the meaning of the word actually is man of Baal. Here's, a, here's, a, here's a, an Israelite, a Hebrew, a follower of, of Jehovah God, and, and one of his kids is named after Baal. Isn't that interesting? And it, sadly, it didn't end with him. We all know about Jonathan and David, right? Jonathan was much more righteous than his father Saul. And yet, I think the influence of Saul carried over because in 1 Chronicles 8.34, it says the son of Jonathan was Meribaal. And that name means Baal is my advocate. Meribaal, by the way, he's, you might also know him as Mephibosheth because that's, his, that's his, what he's also called in the Bible. But isn't that interesting? Named after an idol. You know, my point in bringing all this up is, you know, don't name your child Lucifer. No, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. Hopefully you don't. I mean, that'd be kind of a sad name. What's your child's name? Lucifer. <laughs> no, no, just, that'd be bad. Um, but listen, if you look at the life of Saul, there must have been some toleration, some familiarity or some comfort, level of comfort uh, with the worship of Baal within his household. For him to go to the point, to the extent of, of actually naming a child after Baal. It's like it was no big thing. In fact, they even purposely, you know, you're a man of Baal. Wow. My point in bringing this up, and I think this is what this verse is alluding to, is for you and I, what degree of toleration do you and I have for idolatry in our own homes? And... You know, a good way to gauge that, what's the f familiar topic or what's, the, what's usually discussed in your home? What's commonly discussed in your home? Is it, do you always talk about the God of money? Everything's always about money? Or is it maybe the God of pleasure? That's all you can talk about is, is your vacations and your pleasure and all the things you're going to do or, or maybe status, you know, whatever it might be. What is the, what's the main topic of conversation in your home? Now, 
I don't want you to get me wrong, okay? I'm not saying that you should go around just quoting scripture and speaking in King James English, you know. Honey, what doth thou preparest for me, <laughs> for, for my food, you know, for my victuals? You know, don't, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that uh, you can never talk about worldly things or, or you know, uh, you can never, you know, you have to only watch Christian TV or listen to Christian radio. You know, that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, I hope you don't leave here thinking, well, Pastor Don is saying I can't, you know, we can't talk about anything that's not Christian and stuff. Let me give you, let me kind of elaborate on what I'm trying to get across. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It's really an easy way to find out where someone's heart is. Just listen to him talk. What are the things that they always talk about? What are the things that are the big things that are just, you know, this is their, their focus? It kind of gives you an indication of where their heart's at. And so for you and I, we need to examine our own hearts. What, what's, what are our topics of conversation? What do we mention all the time in our homes and in our families? What do we mainly fill our hearts and our minds with? Because if we would examine that, I think it would be a good indicator of what our priorities are. And so, like I said, King Saul, he must have had some kind of a level of familiarity or comfort or, you know, it must have been something that they kind of talked about frequently or focused on for him to name his son after an idol. How sad is that? The king of Israel. You know, you have to wonder, and I, the Bible doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord, but you have to wonder if that had something to do with how he didn't finish well, the compromise in his life. You have to wonder. Well, let's move on here. Verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruits of your labors from the field, three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So now there's three times a year where the people of God were instructed to gather before the Lord. We have the feast of unleavened bread, which we know as the Passover in the spring. Then there's the Feast of Harvest, which we would know as the, as the Feast of Pentecost, which occurred 50 days after Passover. And then finally, the Feast of Ingathering, which we also know as the Feast of Tabernacles, that occurred in the fall. And what's interesting here is when they, when they gathered, they were not to appear empty-handed. They were to bring something. They were to bring their first fruits, their tithes, or their offerings to the Lord. We live in a consumer culture, and that's no shock to any of us, I think, here, you know, uh, and I think it overflows even sometimes into our spiritual lives as well. Let me, let me give you an illustration. You know, a lot of people rate their church based on what they get out of it. You know, you might, you know, and, and 
you might go, you know, after church day, you may go home and go, man, that message was terrible, you know, or man, the worship was just really good, man. It really, it, it, it blessed me. It lifted me up or, or that message was really good. You know, hopefully that's what you're saying when you leave here, but you know, but, but you know, we, we gauge things on how it blessed us, how we received from it. A lot of times we do that. A lot of people shop around to see what different churches offer. Do they have a good program for the kids? They have lots of activities and programs that, you know, I can, I can uh, make use of or be a part of, whatever. That's our culture. I mean, we live in it, right? We're not, we're not immune to that. But that attitude was foreign to God's people. It was completely foreign to them. The focus was not what they received from the Lord, but what they offered to the Lord. That was the focus for gathering. So for you and I, when we come to gather with the people of God, and we're gathered here together with the people of God this morning, are you coming just to receive? Or are you bringing something to give? What am I talking about? Well, it could be your time. It could be your talent. It could be your treasure. It could be all of that. Are you coming with the thought that, you know what, I'm coming here, I want to serve someone. I hope I get an opportunity to minister to someone this morning. Or maybe your thought is, you know, I, I, I really hope that there's somebody I can encourage this morning. Maybe I, I'm going to look for someone and see if they're down and I want to encourage them. I want to pray with them and give them a, give them a scripture or just something. Just, just kind of bless them in that way. Do you come to share something of yourself with the people of God? Is that your, is that your focus? Is that your priority? Because that's what the Lord is saying here. Don't come to me empty handed. We don't come to receive, we come to give. And you know, it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. Isn't it when we receive, we're blessed? You know, you're blessing me with something? That's counterintuitive. But the reality is, the blessing comes in giving. That's where the blessing truly comes. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I've seen it in my own life. There's times when when ministry's been hard, or maybe it's been it's been really rough, and it's like, man, I, I, I okay, I, I've committed to this, so I'm going to do it. And you go in there, and you know, maybe the attitude's not real good when you go, but afterwards, you're like, man, I'm so blessed having done this ministry. I'm so blessed having done this. I'm so glad I did this. It's true. God's word is true. It is much more blessed to give than to receive. So if you want to be blessed. And to be a blessing, change your focus. Change your focus. Come prepared. Come with something of yourself to give to others. Verse 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So let's break down these things here. First of all, the blood of my sacrifice. It's assumed, or I assume, that they're speaking of the Passover sacrifice. And they were not to have leavened bread. In fact, they were to sweep their house clean before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That, you know, they were supposed to make sure there was no leaven in their house. Why? Because, or yeast. Because yeast, or leaven, is, it's a picture of sin. And so I think what's being communicated here is don't offer sacrifices to the Lord with an unrepentant heart, with sin that hasn't been dealt with. If you're here this morning and, and there's some sin and the Lord's speaking to you about it, man, just get right with the Lord. Just deal with it. 
He says, don't leave the fat of the sacrifice until morning. And I think what he's talking about here is, you know, you think about the burnt, uh, burnt offering. It was to be totally sacrificed or totally consumed on the altar. And I think there's a few things that's being communicated here. First, don't delay in offering your sacrifices. Don't put it off for another day. Also, don't leave any of it over. In other words, don't offer it half-heartedly. And then finally, don't try to maintain today's relationship with the Lord using yesterday's sacrifice. That's kind of a tough one sometimes. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, I did my devotions on, you know, Monday, or I came to church and we read the Bible, and so I'm, I sh I'm good for the rest of the week. Don't, don't try to maintain your relationship with the Lord based on yesterday's sacrifice. We need to come into his presence every day on a regular basis. And then he says, the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And the whole principle here is just basically giving back to the Lord a portion of what's yours. Because in reality, it, you're acknowledging that, that everything that you have came from the Lord. And in reality, all of it is, it, it belongs to the Lord. And so you're just giving back a portion, acknowledging, Lord, thank you for blessing me with this. I'm giving this back to you. And then he says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, I, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, what's the principle here? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Um, for one thing, it seems kind of cruel, doesn't it, to... Uh, to boil an animal's offspring in its mother's milk. I mean, in that, I don't know that that's what the Lord's trying to communicate. But apparently, evidently, there was a pagan fertility rite that involved the, this just exact thing, uh, boiling a calf in its mother's milk. And so what's the, what's the principle here? I think what the Lord is just trying to communicate to the children of Israel is, in your worship of me, don't do things that are just like the pagan ritual. I mean, don't pay, don't, don't, uh, don't do anything that resembles the pagan rituals. So I, again, I, I'm not sure how to apply that necessarily to us here. You know, it's fascinating about that though. The rabbis uh, in Israel down through the years, they, uh, they came up with this rule that even today, you go to Israel, it's still being honored today. You can't mix dairy products with meat. And the reason why is they say it's, it's possible that that dairy product may have came from the mother of the animal that you're eating, you know, the, the meat that you're eating. And so you, if you take that milk in, that dairy product, and you take that meat in at the same time, your stomach, you know, it's boiling, chemically doing something, and you're actually boiling the, the, the young goat in its mother's milk, so to speak. And so they say no meat and, and dairy products together. So if you go to Israel... We've done that before. You, you, you go to a, a deli, you can get a nice roast beef sandwich, but don't get roast beef and cheddar because they won't sell it to you. What you do, though, is you buy it at the counter, and then they have a little market on the side there, with the little, and then you go over there and you buy the cheese. They'll sell that cheese, and then you go together and slap it together, and you got yourself your sandwich. There's ways around everything, okay? You know, if, here's another thing that's fascinating and not having to do with this at all, but... Um, we went to this one restaurant in, in the middle of Israel, and you can get pork there. You can get bacon and ham and all that stuff. And it's like, wait a minute. I thought that was forbidden for, for Israelis. And, and, and you know what they do? This whole farm is on, it's elevated on concrete, and they have it, it's a self-contained uh, 
sewage system and everything so that nothing touches the soil of Israel. So you can get in, you can go into here, into this place and eat all the pork and bacon you want. And it's, you're not, you know, you're, you're like, it's like you're in this bubble. You're isolated. It's fascinating. So there's ways around everything. <laughs> Verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I don't know if your Bible does this, but my Bible, that, those verses there, you'll notice that the angel of the Lord is capitalized. When it says, beware of him, that's capitalized. Obey his voice is capitalized. My name is in him. All those are capitalized. And uh, I think that the, what the translator, and I agree with it, they, they say, well, this angel of the Lord must be Jesus Christ himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate uh, uh, revelation or, or appearing of Jesus Christ because this is the only angel that has the power to pardon sin and so the angel of the Lord uh, it says here it's going to bring the children of Israel into the place that God has prepared for them which was Canaan the land of Canaan the promised land well Jesus Christ has prepared heaven for you and I, right? And he's going to take us there someday soon. John 14, verses 2 through 3, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a comfort. What an exciting thing. So the Lord has prepared a place for us. But you know what? That's then. Right now in our lives today, the Lord God goes before us and he's prepared things for us today. You know, things that happen to us today, things that will happen to us tomorrow, sometimes they just catch us totally off guard. You know, we, we were totally not expecting something and, or maybe we just don't understand why, why are we going this thing, going through this thing. But, but listen, everything that happens in our lives is sifted through God's sovereignty, everything. It's sifted through God's sovereignty. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan. In other words, God has a plan and a purpose for my life and for your life. And some of the stuff, I don't understand why. I didn't expect it. But God has prepared it, and he's going with us through it. He's leading us in it. Verse 23. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly, uh, utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars." It'll say later on in, in the end of this chapter, but in Deuteronomy 7, 16, it says almost the same thing. It says, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. So what the Lord God is telling the children of Israel, you need to completely annihilate. And that's a whole other Bible study we could get into, but you need to completely annihilate these nations 
that you're going in to take their land. You see, God had already judged their wickedness, and they were utterly wicked for 400 years. God had been patient with them, and now he's judging them via the children of Israel. And he did not want their influence. They didn't, he didn't want their worship of idols and their practices, which were wicked, to influence the children of Israel. And so that was his, he says, you know, you, you should utterly cut them off. Don't bow down to their gods or serve them, because it'll be a snare to you. Well, that was God's perfect plan, but it didn't quite work out that way. When we get to the book of Joshua, Joshua, uh, you know, there was these Gibeonites. They were, they were nearby neighbors of, Joshua, of the children of Israel. They, they had heard about the children of Israel going through and wiping out all these different places. And, and they came and they, they deceived Joshua into thinking that they were strangers from far away and they wanted to make a covenant with them when they were actually right next door in the land of Canaan. And Joshua, it was basically a case of making a decision without first seeking the Lord. He just went on his own. Well, we do that sometimes, right? We just, we just do it without praying or make it, make it do something, and then we have to pay the consequences of that. When we get to Judges chapter 1, it's, most of chapter 1 is basically a, 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 an accounting of all the different tribes and how they failed to remove all the Canaanites from their land. And, and, and it did become a snare to them. As we look through the history uh, of the children of Israel, it became a snare to them. And they did adopt the idolatry of the pagan nations around them. I mean, look at Saul, his house. I mean, it was, that influence even was down to Saul's day. For you and I, what's the principle here? I think the principle is pretty obvious. God doesn't want us to compromise with sin because he knows the damage that it can do in our hearts, in our lives. When we allow things to remain, that shouldn't be. Again, we need to deal with those things. Verse 25. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the numbers of your days. This blessing was based on their obedience to God and his commands. Under the old covenant, under the new covenant, the basis of our blessings is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canite, and the Hittite from before you. Hornets. Is there some symbolic uh, you know, is there some symbolism behind hornets? Well, to understand the symbolism, I had to go to the Hebrew and find out what the word was. You know what the word is? It's hornets, stinging wasps. <laughs> so does that mean that Lord is going to literally use hornets? Beats me. <laughs> I don't know. But this is what I do know. The angel of the Lord that was going before them, to the children of Israel, he was a guide. He was a protector uh, to, the, to his enemies. He was a hornet, basically. Um, you think about when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were led by the, the pillar of cloud, the, the presence of the Lord. For the children of Israel, especially when they got to the Red Sea, it would provide illumination for them. For the, on the opposite side of it, for the Egyptians, it was like thick blackness. They couldn't see anything. So is the Lord going to literally send hornets? Um, I don't know. 
But you know, that's kind of the way God does it. God sometimes uses unconventional ways when he's, when he does things for us. Um, the way God leads, protects, and provides for us, it very frequently comes through unconventional sources. In the end, it doesn't really matter how God does what he does, but it's just the fact that he does it. I mean, the Lord's blessed us in ways that, you know, it's like, it's been amazing as we've, as in our married life and we've gone through things and, you know, maybe we've been, a, there's been a, maybe a money shortage or something that the Lord has provided through all these different avenues that it's not like, you know, Egg McMahon didn't come to the house and give us a, you know, that clearinghouse sweepstakes or nothing, but the Lord, however he did it, we've, we're here. And even today as our church, I look and I go, Lord, you, you provide and you provide so many different ways. That's, it's not this, okay, Lord, I, I think you should do it this way. He does whatever he wants to do. And I think that's what he's saying here. Don't worry about how I do it. Just as I'm going to take, I'm going to take care of it. Think about it. And we're just getting into the Christmas season. How did God lead Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem for the birth of the Savior? I mean, was there some kind of a, a announcement that says go to Bethlehem? No. You know what happened? It was a decree of Caesar, Augustus, Caesar Augustus. One morning he wakes up and goes, oh, I think I'm going to take a census of all the, all the people in the land in my kingdom. And so he makes this decree because he's king. He can do that. But guess what Proverbs 21 one says? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God's in control of these things. And he'll use whatever he wants to use to, have, to accomplish his purpose. So I don't get all caught up in, oh, how are you going to do this, Lord? I just know that he's going to do it. And I'm going to trust him and just walk in that. What a blessing. Verse 28. And I will send hornets before you, which I read, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. I don't like that verse. You know, why is this incremental deliverance? Why not do it just totally at first? And the Lord says, you're not ready to inhabit the land all at once. What's going to happen is the land's going to become overgrown. It'll take a lot more work to clean it up and everything. And wild beasts are going to get out of hand. And, and now you, once you, you know, if I did all that, you have this barren land that you have to recultivate and you have all these wild animals everywhere you got to control or do something with them. So God says, I'm not going to drive them all out in one year, but little by little. And God does the same thing for you and us, or you and I, I should say. Why does he do that? Well, first of all, he wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. You know, if God just, if, you know, we pray and ask the Lord to do something, he's just, okay, I'm going to do it. And he just plows it out and you just walk. After a while, you're just, there's no faith. You're just, you're just walking because it's, it's all done. God wants us to lean on him daily and to come into his presence and to trust him step by step. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so God wants us to walk in faith. So he wants us to be in constant dependence upon him. Secondly, he knows that we're not ready for whatever that might be. You know, maybe you're thinking, man, I, 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 why am I not married yet? I want to get married. And, and, you know, that's, that's your idea. And, you know, it's like, God, why aren't you, why aren't you doing this yet? Well, maybe you're not ready yet. Maybe. I'm not saying that's definite, but maybe not. Or promotion. 
or a ministry position, you know, whatever it might be, God knows maybe you're not quite ready for that and he, and he doesn't want to get you, give it to you until you're mature enough to handle it. And so in that process, he's preparing us and he's equipping us. And can you just rest in that? Just, just allow the Lord to work in you and, and just in his timing, perfect his, per, you know, do his perfect will. That's a hard one. I don't, I'd like everything just right now. I don't have to, I don't like waiting. But that's what God wants to do. And sometimes that's what he does in our lives. He makes us wait for a purpose. And it's a good purpose, not a bad purpose. Finally, verse 31. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. You know, God's just saying, don't do this, don't do this, because I don't want you to do this. But he's saying it's for your own good. It's going to be a snare for you if you compromise. When you look at this, the boundary that the Lord God's given, given them, they, when the children of Israel went into the land and took the land, that wasn't the boundary that, that's being described here is much bigger than what they actually took. It was almost fulfilled in the days of Solomon, the kingdom of the golden age of Israel, uh, but it's going to be completely fulfilled in the millennium, which is coming soon. <laughs> well, my point in all of this in this last portion here, God made the promise to the children of Israel of all this land, but as we'll see as we, as we progress through uh, Exodus and into the book of Joshua and Judges, the promise was there. God was given the land, but they needed to go in and to possess the land. They needed to walk by faith and in obedience and, and take the land. And, and, you know, I think God has so many things prepared for you and I. And what he wants us to do is to trust him, to allow him to work in our lives right now, to equip us and to prepare us for what he has for us in the future. Because the promises are there. They're yea and amen in Jesus Christ. But for you and I, it's just a matter of, of, of walking into those promises and in, in obedience and in faith in the Lord. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord.